This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Middle East has been a place of violence and war for some time with some peace mixed in. One of the men tasked with trying to bring peace to the region was Shimon Peres, Israel's former prime minister and president. His legacy of work he did in the region is now out in publication. President Perez finished writing his memoir only weeks before his passing, and that was almost one year ago in September of 2016. The book is titled No Room for Small Dreams, and it's a pleasure to have Shimon Perez's son, Hemi, joining us on the phone uh, right now to discuss the book and his father. Hemi is managing a partner, managing general partner, excuse me, and co-founder of venture capital fund Patango. And also joining me here in studio is Knowledge of Wharton executive editor, editor Mukul Pandya. Hemi, great to have you with us today. Wonderful to be here today. Good morning. Thank you. Great to have you with us. I, I want to ask, I mean, kind of a general question, and I think it's interesting to get the perspective of, of a son about his father, but what do you think are the is the last, lasting legacy of your father? The lasting legacy of my father is uh, the notion that uh, we are at a time that we're transitioning from uh, a world of territories to a world of science and technology. Uh, greatness uh, came uh, in the old uh, era by building militaries, going to war, and uh, confiscating as much land, natural resources, and cheap labor. Uh, today, with science and technology, we can actually create as much energy food, water, and of course automation and uh, the digital age with robotics is replacing uh, the old world slaving. So for the first time in history, we can win without having other lose, or in other words, my father believed that nations can become great, not on the expense of others. He believed that we are living a world of wars and stepping into a world of global threats. And therefore, more and more responsibility is overhanded to uh, the shoulders of entrepreneurs and CEOs of great companies. And he believed that we need to think beyond borders in order to jointly overcome the challenges of tomorrow. Well, your father completed this book, uh, No Room for Small Dreams, just weeks before he passed away in September, as Dan said. Uh, Now, in 1995, he had already written a memoir titled Battling for Peace, uh, what do you think inspired him to write this book, and what do you think he hoped to accomplish beyond that earlier memoir? So my father wrote uh, 15 books, and all of them were great ideas and great causes that uh, he served in order to make uh, the world better. And uh, peace was uh, basically the last uh, thing that he had decided to give his life to and achieve not only peace between us and the Palestinians, and not only in the region, but in the whole world. And I believe that uh, No Room for Small Dreams um, is basically the last voice he wanted to be echoed uh, after he physically no longer will be able to uh, pitch his vision to the young generation and to leaders worldwide. Um, I think this book is very different from previous books because what he's trying to do in this book is tell the story of his life uh, with the intention that it will be reflecting on the future. Be optimist, dare to dream, uh, think in a positive way, and make sure that what seems to be impossible uh, will become possible. 
And this is why I think this book is very different from anything that he wrote uh, in the past. I found it interesting, Henry, of uh, of reading more about your father and, and his early years and, and understanding, I guess it was your grandfather who really brought the family to Israel, correct? That's correct. My grandfather uh, businesses in uh, the shtetl in Vishniva uh, in old Poland did not uh, bear fruits. And so he decided to try his luck in uh, Eretz Israel. And for my father as a young boy coming, following their father after two years, was a dream uh, uh, realized to come and live in Israel. So in 1934, with his mother and brother, they traveled to Israel and they landed in Jaffa two years after uh, his father uh, left. And uh, ever since, uh, he started to uh, continue his uh, service uh, of Israel from foundation until uh, being uh, president and to his very last day. Now, I found your father's description of his first arrival in Israel, where he says that Vishneva Poland was his cocoon, but in Israel he grew wings. I just found exactly. it so incredibly moving and poetic. And I wonder, what are your favorite parts of this book? My favorite parts are, of course, um, emotionally, I love this uh, first chapter, which is called uh, Call for Service, which is uh, my family story, how we depart from an old world in uh, Europe and departs from his uh, beloved uh, grandfather with a promise to stay Jewish, something that I inherited from him and uh, I will keep on for generations our Jewishness forever. Um, and uh, the epilogue, which is uh, very, very moving. When I read the epilogue, uh, actually, I could not uh, stop crying because I saw, first of all, I understood that he knew that his time is coming and his days are numbered. But also poetically, I think uh, the epilogue talks about his life to his people, his life to his nation. And he actually sums up his life. He says, I was given some 2.5 billion seconds and I did not waste any one of them uh, <laughs> with the uh, ultimate uh, conclusion that if he has uh, any regrets in his life is only that uh, he should have dreamt more and should have dreamt bigger. And when we spoke, just as he finished uh, contemplating the book, he said, uh, when he said those words, um, he on the spot decided to title the book as No Room for Small Dreams. Uh, the book is not my life. The book is not about his achievements. The book is about dreams and greater, greater causes to serve and hard choices to make. But the idea of the book is actually when you read it, um, it lends also the future, not only the past. So when you read the book, um, you should look for all the tools that he used in order to achieve those great achievements and fulfill those dreams, but really read the book with your eyes into the future. Yes, we can dream, we should dream, let's never give up on hope. And what seems to be impossible is possible if we only dare and if we only cross a desert um, in order to reach uh, that point. No, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the epilogue, Hemi, because uh, my reaction when I read the epilogue was very similar to what you said. I had tears in my eyes also. And I have two questions about that. You know, I wonder, he tells a beautiful story at the end about a painter who is asked about his favorite paintings. And yeah. I wonder if you could share that story with our listeners. But I have another question as well. And this is actually relates to the introduction that you and your siblings have written 
where you quote your father as saying, count the number of dreams you have and yes. compare with them, them with the number of achievements you have had. If you have more exactly. dreams than achievements, then you are still young. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, which of your dreams, what you, which of his dreams do you share and how will you fulfill them? So the first uh, thing about uh, the painter, it's an Israeli painter called uh, Adon. And he was one asked, uh, Mr. Adon, what is the best uh, painting you ever drawn? And he said, the one I will paint tomorrow. And that was my father's uh, philosophy as well. He never looked back. And he always uh, believed and thought that uh, what he will achieve uh, tomorrow will be based on the dreams that we have today will be greater and brighter and more optimistic and more significant. Um, that that was the answer that my father gave uh, when he asked when he was asked what is your greatest uh, achievement ever. With regards to age, uh, my father, uh, when he was uh, asked about his age, Mr. Paris, is it is it hard to work at your age? Why do you keep working? Uh, etc. I used to say, I'm not old, I'm young. And he found a new definition for age. Uh, he says, age is, a, is a, a result of how many dreams you have in your head. And what you really need to do is compare it with what you've done in life. And if mm-hmm. you have more dreams, uh, then you are still young. And my father was forever young. Hemi Perez is our guest. He, uh, His father, Shimon Perez, uh, we're talking about uh, the book No Room for Small Dreams. This is Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I, I find the, the, the innovation part of it interesting because, you know, we see now uh, what Israel is doing in the world of innovation. Companies like Mobileye and, and a variety of them are making their stand on the global perspective. But this is this is a philosophy that he had a long time ago, and there's part of it that talks about his understanding of how important computers were going to be going back 50, 60 years. Absolutely. My father used uh, the tools of innovation throughout his life. And Israel as a nation was founded uh, on the basis of uh, science, technology, and innovation. Uh, when the nation was founded, then we needed to populate the nation in a, in a land that is refusing and a dry land, you had to innovate in agriculture and in water technologies in order to settle the land and populate it. Uh, the second phase of Israel was really building the defense industry when you were outnumbered by the hostile uh, armies around us. And again, my father used innovation and science in order to make Israel a superpower militarily. From Dimona, uh, the nuclear facilities, to the Israel aerospace industries, and to Rafael that focused on missiles. Um, the third uh, stage in Israel innovation uh, journey is building our economy based on science and technology. You just mentioned Mobileye and other great companies and technologies that came from Israel yep. to make the world uh, uh, better. My father believed that the fourth stage after we became strong uh, militarily and economically is to achieve long-lasting peace. And he believes that peace will be achieved with innovation as well. Now, your father uh, you know, played a very critical role in, in, in helping Israel become, as it is widely called, the startup nation. Uh, and I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about his role in, in bringing that about. And also, how did that shape your perspective about venture capital and investing in innovation through Pitango? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the areas he talks about in uh, the book is becoming prime minister for the first time in 1984. Uh, Israel had an economy which was basically socialist economy. And at that time when he became prime minister, the inflation rate was about 400% a year. And he understood that, uh, first of all, he had to stabilize the uh, situation and zero down the inflation rate. But he understood that uh, uh, the foundations of our economy should be based on science, technology, global markets, and exports. And so he did two things. First of all, he started to invite global enterprises to come to Israel, set up a shop in Israel, employ the Israeli engineers, and start innovating in Israel. And at the same time, provide incentive through regulation and tax, and tax regime to endorse entrepreneurship within Israel. Today, Israel has 350 global enterprises operating in Israel and 6,000 startup companies building great technologies to make the world better. So I think he could be uh, described as the founder of the startup nation. And as a matter of uh, of fact, when the book Startup Nation was written, uh, it starts with the story of my father. And actually, he was the uh, protagonist in the book that actually is described as the founder of the startup nation. So on one hand, Israel is a startup. On the other hand, Israel is a land of thousands of startups. And I think um, his role is very well recognized within the Israeli uh, technology ecosystem. Um, As for myself, I connected with my father's life and vision through my passion to technology and science and innovation and the notion that uh, we need to build our our country uh, as a strong country by spearheading science and technology, whether it is for military purposes, whether it is for economic purposes, or whether it is for our ability to achieve peace. And I decided to focus my life on entrepreneurship and innovation. And today, as a chairman of the Paris Center for Peace and Innovation, uh, in the last uh, three years of his life, we combined the concept of peace and the concept of innovation as one. And we believe that not only the future belongs to innovators, but peace will be achieved through innovation. Let me ask you, then, uh, playing off of uh, what you just said about your your father with the startup nation with Israel, do you think there's a time in the future where the Middle East as a whole can be a startup region, and, and you know where a lot of what you see in Israel now can really be be branched out into some of the other countries where the, you know the relationship with Israel is still a little tenuous at times. Absolutely. This is a wonderful uh, question. I believe that uh, the future of the Middle East will be basically a startup region because I believe that what we have in the Middle East is 400 million Arabs in 22 countries that speak the same language. And they can do exactly what China has done with its Internet market, the Chinese-speaking Internet market, which is different from the U.S. market. And I believe that we can develop an Arab Internet uh, market that uh, will drive the GDP, will drive information, and will bring the young generation in the Middle East the opportunity to shape their own future. As you know, the Middle East is the slowest growing region in the world, right. and one of the most youngest, the youngest ones. The average age is 25, and uh, 60% of the people are below the age of 30. And the Arabic language is the fastest growing language today on the internet. So my father believed 
that if global enterprises will start investing in, in the region and they will come and set up a shop in the region, just like they have done in Israel, and if there will be an incentive for the young generation to build companies, then uh, it is not a dream. Uh, the Middle East can become one of the most flourishing uh, areas in terms of uh, technology and innovation. When, uh, Hemi, when we met in your office uh, in Israel five years ago, 2012, uh, one of the things I found very uh, interesting about your approach is how you were proactively investing in companies that bridged both Israeli and Arab entrepreneurs. And I was wondering in the past five years, uh, how, how far have you gotten with that strategy? How well has it worked? And especially as innovation moves more in the direction of financial inclusion through fintech, where do you see the future of your strategy going? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for the question. And it was great to see you in Israel uh, when we met. And indeed, uh, part of our activities is really invest and foster Arab entrepreneurship and also invest in companies which are uh, focusing on the region in terms of its market. And of course, everything that can be done by software and digital can cross borders easily than goods and other uh, services. Uh, so we focus on that. We focus on the digital age, uh, on the digital wave, and uh, the disruption that we see in different areas. And one of the areas, of course, is uh, financial technologies. Uh, still, the Middle East is lagging behind in terms of uh, infrastructure for uh, financing. And I think that um, so far we have done much more than is known and visible in the world. But still, I must say, uh, we're still far away from where we want to be. Uh, but as my father taught us, you need to be resilient. And you need to cross uh, a desert. Um, as long as you know the direction you're going to, uh, and as long as you don't stop, because standing still, as my father wrote in the book, is not an option. Uh, obviously, your, your your father has had to deal with a variety of, of different uh, times in in history where uh, there has been unfortunate violence that that has occurred. Uh, he you know he had to be dealing with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, uh, the Entebbe raid, uh, and I'd be interested to get your opinion of how you believe your father was able to handle all of that while at the same time being such a, 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 a forward thinker in trying to build entrepreneurship, but also trying, you know, uh, to build innovation as well? Well, my father was the greatest uh, optimist in the world. and uh, what <laughs> He had to be. He, Hemi, he had yeah, to be to be an optimist. He had to be. Once he was asked, uh, Mr. Paris, how come you're so optimistic in this world? And he said, you know, I tried being pessimistic. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by nature, he was an optimist. But for him, those tools, those wonderful tools that he built in order to travel in the future is something that he offers the readers in the book. Um, and basically, uh, the way for him to overcome all the setbacks and the challenges was actually, as he said, to serve a great cause. Find a great cause to serve and give your life to it. So everything that he did was because he served something that was greater uh, than him and us and all of us. And when you do that, uh, then you can devote your life and dedication. And as my father used to say, there are no desperate situations. There are only desperate people. And he will never be desperate, will never be cynic, and he will never be skeptic because he thinks 
that pessimists never found a star in the sky, and he was constantly looking, looking for stars in the sky. And you have to be optimistic. Speaking of stars in the sky, uh, you know, uh, one of the parts uh, uh, of, of the book that I found very moving was when he writes about your mother. Uh, and and uh, he, he says that she let him dream, but she also kept him grounded. Uh, can you recall any examples of how she did that? Yeah, so basically, as long as my father would serve great causes... Uh, he had a free uh, uh, agreement to do anything, to travel, to meet, spend time. She never stopped him from servicing uh, his country. But when it came to people, uh, she had a better eye and a better judgment. And she would always voice her opinion and saying, you should be aware of this person or you should be, oh, don't trust that one. And so by doing that, she connected him to the ground. Uh, my father was a man of a people who believed in goodness, and uh, usually you had credit. Uh, you have to remember that uh, my father was chosen by Ben-Gurion when he was really, really young. And Ben-Gurion yeah. gave him all the, uh, the credit to do great things in a very young age in his life. And uh, my father was that kind of a person, too. When he saw someone who is talented, who is capable, he would give him all the uh, ability to uh, to operate, and um, uh, and so my mother was the one to bring him to more reality by saying you should be aware of it or you should be aware of that. Sometimes things that uh, my father by himself uh, did not see well, and she was she was the voice of reasoning for him. Uh, that is a very interesting part of the book. Uh, where he, where uh, your father writes about a debate about the future of Israel, uh, that uh, Ben Gurion won with a razor-thin majority, and he, he talking about that incident, he writes that it's very important for leaders to listen, and he, he what he says is listening is not just a key element of good leadership; it is the key, the mean to unlock doors that have been slammed shut. Now, as a final question, I was wondering whether, in addition to listening, what are some of the other attributes? that allowed him to sustain his leadership for more than 70 years, uh, you know, starting very young and then uh, being a leader for all of his life. And what can other leaders learn from that experience? So I will tell you, uh, I will answer this question by sharing with you why the door of Ben-Gurion was always open to him and close to others. And uh, Ben-Gurion asked, why is it that young Shimon can step into your room anytime he wants and others can't? So he said, because of three things, he said, first of all, I know that when he comes to me, he will never ask anything for himself. The second thing I know that he will never tell a lie and he will never badmouth anybody else. And the third one is whenever he comes to me, he has a great idea, a great vision that will make our country better. Uh, my father was a, a believed that leaders should not exercise power. They should become servants. Right. They should serve their people and not try to uh, uh, impose themselves on, on, on the people. And I believe that uh, his leadership was very unique and very valued by world leaders. And thus, their door was always open to him because they knew that when it comes to them, he will offer them a great idea to serve their country in a better way. Hemi, thank you very much for giving us your time today. It's a fantastic book, and it's great to get some insight about your father. Thank you very much today. Thank you so much for lending me a stage. 
read it and share it. Thank you. Thank you, Hami. Great to have you with us. Uh, the book, you so much. The book, again, is No Room for Small Dreams by Shimon Perez. Came out last week. It is available in bookstores and online. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.